Well, good morning, church. It's good to see everyone this morning as we continue in the Word in 1 Corinthians, continue in this series that we began on, on Easter Sunday called The Foolishness of the Cross. Today we're going to finish up chapter 1, as Bob said, and then uh, we'll dive a little bit into chapter 2 before we uh, finish this series and just before our fifth Sunday service together on the 29th. And so... Entitled today's message, This Is Us, and I know I ripped that off of a popular TV uh, show. Hopefully, this message won't bring you to tears like that show does, apparently. I've not watched it, but I've heard it's the saddest show that's ever been created. So, hopefully, the message won't bring you to tears. If they are, hope that they're either tears of contrition, uh, repentance, or, or joy over the things we're going to see in God's Word uh, this morning. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, three basic things that we're going to look at this morning in verses 26 through 31. Three things that I would encourage us as the people of God to consider this morning. First of all, we're going to consider our calling. Secondly, we're going to consider God's choosing. And finally, this morning, we're going to consider our Christ. And it is Him that we are here to focus upon this morning. So verse 26, let's, let's look at it together. Paul begins by saying, Consider your calling, brothers. Now when he uses the terminology brothers, he's referring to the family of God, those who are the church, who have been rescued by the blood of Jesus Christ, poured out at the cross, who have been redeemed by his sacrifice, who have been brought into the family of God through faith in his one and only Son. And so he can call them brothers. He calls us brothers because of our familial connection to God through Christ. Consider your calling, brothers. And then if you were looking for a word that will bring you more self-esteem this morning, you're not going to find it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. You weren't the brightest crayons in the box, Paul says. Not many of you were powerful according to worldly standards, you bunch of wimps. Not many of you were of noble, or literally the Greek says of high birth. You weren't well born. Consider your calling. As the people of God, it's true that not many of us have smarts, strength, or status in the world's view. Again, if you come here this morning for something to boost your self-esteem, you're come to the wrong place. This is who we are as the people of God. This is us as the people of God. Primarily, God has chosen in the world those who lack in all of the things that the world counts as worthy. Think about it for a moment. Aren't these the very categories by which the world measures our worth? By worldly wisdom by the gaining of degrees and education and abilities above others in order to elevate ourselves farther up into society through those kinds of means. And there's nothing wrong with education. Education is a good thing. There, there's nothing wrong with gaining degrees and, 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 and using that to, to help and to serve others. But he's saying here, the world measures us based upon how much we know. 
and the initials that may be added unto our names, indicating degrees that we hold. Not many of us, he says, though, in the church have much of that. We don't have much smarts. The world also tends to measure us based upon our strength, our abilities, the things that we can do. But he says not many of us in the church have much strength, much ability, much power in terms of what the world sees as powerful. And certainly not many of us have uh, this status, this, uh, what he calls a high birth here or, or a, a noble birth. Not many of us have the right last name. So consider those three categories. That the world measures us based upon how smart we are, how strong we are, and what kind of status that we have in society. In every pocket around the world, I think you can find that one of those three rises to prominence as the primary measuring stick for that particular culture. I was reading a, a, a book this week by a pastor from, from Boston, the city of Boston, and he identified in that book that for the city of Boston, it is this worldly wisdom, education, the gaining of knowledge, that's the primary measuring stick in the city of Boston, a, a city that, that is, it is all about gaining degrees and education, and, and, and it's a college town, so there's a lot of academia there. And he said, that's the driving force in the city of Boston, that the measuring stick for people there, for Boston, Bostonians is education. I thought about our particular culture and I thought, no, not, not so much. That's not really the, the, the highest priority for the folks of Breckenridge County. I heard recently uh, about those who were doing mission work in the, in the country of Cuba that has recently opened up to mission work. Uh, previously, that was a closed country that missionaries could not enter into, but in recent years, that's opened. We pray that that would continue to remain open. But the measuring stick in the, in the country of Cuba is not so much educational or worldly wisdom, but it is definitely a power structure. It's how much political power that you have, how much you've been able to rise up the social ladder and, and gain a place of prominence and position. And in a, in a communist society such as Cuba, that's what matters. That's the measuring stick. How high up the ladder have you been able to go in achieving power and prominence in society? And, and I got to thinking about Breckenridge County, and I thought, you know, I, I don't really think that that's it here either. Not that those things are unimportant, but I don't think that's primary. But then I got to this third one. Those who are of noble or high birth. Now you may disagree with what I'm about to say, and I'm probably going to step on some toes that are going to come and kick me after the message this morning. But I, I have to say, of the three that the Word of God has put before us this morning as measuring sticks, as, as scales on which we would be measured as the people of God, I think this third one defines the culture in which we've been planted. Isn't so much of the culture in which we reside here in this county based upon what your last name is or what it's not? I'm just going to let that linger for a moment. If you're offended, take that to the Lord. If you're in agreement, take that to the Lord as well, please. 
Because either way, we find ourselves in a, in a society that so much of what we are facing as we are seeking to reach people with the message of the gospel here in this county is that there is a social structure based upon what, the way that you were born, who you are connected to in your family structure for better or for worse. And if you were born with a good name, you have all the benefits of that. And if you were not born with a good name, you will never have all the benefits of that. And the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, in a place that very much was about status, he says to the Corinthians, listen folks, not many of you were well born. Not many of you have the right last name. I'm going to let that linger for a moment this morning so we consider what that speaks into a culture like ours. This is nothing new. In, in the early church, there was uh, one of the early church fathers went by uh, the name Origen. And Origen writes of a conversation that he had with an unbelieving uh, gentleman there in, in, the, in the early church, uh, a man who didn't believe in Christ and, and was so appalled by what he was seeing in the church. And, and they were having a conversation, and he talks about it this way. And he says, those who summon people to other mysteries, by the way, the word mysteries there means religions, other faiths. Those who summon people to other mysteries, other religions, other faiths, they make this preliminary proclamation. This is what, the way that they draw people in to their faith. Whoever is pure from all defilement and whose soul knows nothing of evil and who has lived well and righteously, that's the ones they're drawn in. The ones who measure up. Hey, if you measure up, if you've got the right name and, and the right power and the right wisdom, come on in. That's the people that we want. Such are the preliminary exhortations of those who promise purification from sin in these other religions. But let us hear what these Christians call. And this was where he was interacting with this gentleman, and, and this gentleman was saying, you Christians are weird. Let us hear what these Christians call. They say, whoever is a sinner, whoever is unwise, whoever is a child, and he's using that as an, in a demeaning form, and in a word, whoever is a wretch, the kingdom of God will receive him. Don't we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me? But are we at the place where we would glory in our wretchedness? You see, instead of giving us the right surname, the Lord God Almighty decided to give us His name, to call us His children. And that identifying factor goes well beyond what any status you have or lack because of the quality or lack thereof of your last name, of your wisdom, of your strength. Consider your calling, my brothers. First Peter 2, you are a chosen race, chosen by Almighty God. You are a royal priesthood instituted by Almighty God. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He has chosen you so that what? What's his purpose in choosing the weak and the unwise and those of low estate? His purpose is this, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Because whose excellencies do the wise proclaim? The worldly wise proclaim their own excellencies, don't they? Look how smart I am. The powerful in this world proclaim their own power. Look how powerful I am. Those who are born with status in this world proclaim their status 
even though it will not last beyond this life. But we proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of the darkness of our sin and into his marvelous light. This is our proclamation. This is the result of our calling. So we consider our calling this morning. Secondly, we consider God's choosing. In verses 27 through 29, the emphasis is upon God's choosing. But God chose. But God chose. But God chose. And I know that we live in a culture that is obsessed with personal choice, so much so that today folks are choosing to are seeking to choose their own sexual identity, even though in Genesis 1.27 it says that God made us male and female, both created in his image to display his glory in the world. We are now creating all kinds of other gender identities because two doesn't seem like to be enough to choose from. And we're adding more and more to that. And, and this rampant freedom of choice that we are exalting as the primary thing is killing us. When the most important choice that's ever been made was this. It's right in your text. Verse 27, but God chose. We've talked about how the world chooses. The world chooses the wise, the powerful, those who are born with the right name. But God chose who? Look at what he says there. But God chose the foolish in the world to shame the wise, the weak in the world to shame the strong, and the low and despised, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. What is he saying here? He's saying God chose a bunch of nincompoops and namby-pamby nobodies. <laughs> this is us, church. Welcome to it. If you identify with the Lord Jesus Christ, this is us. You say, well, I don't like that. I don't want to be that. But I must tell you this morning, if you would not identify with those things, then perhaps you will have no part with Him. It's just like when Peter said, no, Lord, I don't want you to wash my feet. What did Jesus say? Then you'll have no part with me. If you will not identify with the most humiliating activities in the world, if you will not identify with the cross of Christ where he was humiliated for us, if you will not identify with the lowly, with the stupid, with the weak, then I believe Jesus would say you'll have no part with him. Because God chose what the world rejects. Let's think about God's family for a few minutes. Go back to the Old Testament a little bit. See, that the pattern of God has always been this. This has always been the pattern of God to choose that which the world rejects. So we look at God's family and we see that for every Solomon, a man of great wisdom, there's a whole set of Saul's who was not a very wise leader for every Samson, a man of great strength, there are a gaggle of Gideons who was the runt of the litter. He was considered the lowliest in his family. And when the Lord came and said, hey, I want to use you, Gideon, Gideon's going, who, who are you talking about? There's got to be somebody else that you're looking for. There's a whole gaggle of those folks. For every Sarah, a woman of great status in that patriarchal day, there are a hundred Hagars who have no status and live as slaves in the world. And for every Rebecca, for every Rachel, there are a rabble of Ruths and Rachel. 
Rahabs. And I know that we exalt those names today, but understand they were the lowest of the low, and yet God chose to use those ladies in the very lineage of his son as he was bringing him into the world through the Jewish line. He chose to use those that the world considers nothing. This is the game plan of our God to display his power and his wisdom and his status through what the world sees as weak and foolish and worthless. Why does he do this? I mean, we have to admit there's something in us that says, God, wouldn't you have been better off to choose the best of the best? I mean, think about the way our world does things. Let's think about just this, just this past winter here, which seems to be lingering on for eternity, but it's going to pass eventually. When, when, when we think about this past winter, we had one of the best parts of the winter was the Winter Olympics. Now, who does every nation seek to send to the Winter Olympics? It's the best of the best, right? I mean, you don't send the dude to the Olympics who comes in last place repeatedly in the race. You, you don't send to the Winter Olympics the one who's the worst skier that's tumbling down the slopes on purpose, okay? You don't send that dude, and yet that's the one that God chooses. And you think about it in the political sphere. We don't put into the office the guy who gets no votes, but that's the one that God chooses. We don't make a CEO the kid working in the mailroom who has no experience, and yet that's the one that God chooses chooses why does he do this god does this for the same reason that god does everything that god does god does this so that he gets all the glory you see because when he can take nincompoops and namby pamby nobodies and turn them into something that flips the world on its ear when god can use the weak and worthless in this world to accomplish his purposes no the thing that the world must say even though it seems like utter ridiculousness the thing that the world must say is what we find in acts chapter 4 in acts chapter 4 the disciples were beginning to re receive persecution for the cause of christ and the powerful and those considered wise and of great status came face to face with these lowly disciples. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, they weren't very wise, and they were common, ordinary, unpowerful, lacking in status men, they were astonished. But they recognized this. Those dudes had been with Jesus. May that be said of us, church. May the world look upon us and say, you know what, they're not much. But we can tell they've been with Jesus. Perhaps as we leave out of this place today and we go to the restaurants to eat lunch, perhaps they will look upon us and say, they don't look like much, but there's something there. Perhaps they've been with Jesus. And when you wake up in the morning and you open this word that seems like foolishness to the world, and, and others would say, why not just sleep in rather than spending an hour reading the word of God and praying? That seems like foolishness. That seems like weakness. And your religion is a crutch. Perhaps they would understand from seeing the word lived out in our lives that because we've been with Jesus, there is something astonishing about us 
May we as the church no longer be known for our buildings and our budgets and our programs. May we be known as people who simply spend time with Jesus Christ and are transformed from glory to glory into His likeness. As we finish this morning, let us consider more deeply our Christ. Look there at verses 30 and 31. So powerful are these words. And because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. That's the Apostle Paul's favorite description of the Christian life. And I know there are other places where it talks about Christ in us. It talks about Christ in us, the hope of glory. There's many places that talks about Christ in us. But three times as many times in the New Testament you find not that Christ in us, you find us in Christ. Many times, that's the Apostle Paul's entire summary of the Christian life is just in Christ. And that's what he's doing here. Because of the Lord God Almighty, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Not the wisdom of the world that we've just been talking about, but wisdom from God. And how is that wisdom from God put on display through these three things? I know these are big words, but they are powerful words. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Let me walk you through what he's trying to say here to us, what he's teaching us about the wisdom of God. First of all, it was put on display in salvation past. This is Christ, our righteousness. Here's what I want you to do. Flip back in your Bible just a few pages to Romans chapter 3. You're in 1 Corinthians. The book right before it is Romans. If you'll flip back to Romans chapter 3 or scroll back if you have one of those electronic Bibles. But if you have the good old print in your hand Bible, flip back a few pages to Romans chapter 3. I want to show you the power that God is putting on display in the gospel. Salvation past Christ our righteousness. Romans 3 says this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Translation, you will never work your way into the favor of God. You'll never be wise enough or strong enough to do it. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin, but now, there's one of those great buts in the scripture, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, it's been unveiled, it's been put on display apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, what is the righteousness of God? It is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, not just for the powerful people, not just for the wealthy people, not just for the people who were well-born or have status in society. No, this is for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know that verse, don't we? Many of us know Romans 3.23, but see it in its context. The gospel is that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That there was nothing in us us that measured up or that God chose us because we had so much of some certain quality. We were lacking in every quality that that God deems to be valuable. And yet he chose us. And clothed us in the righteousness of Christ. And our salvation in that moment was complete. So the Bible can say without any hesitation, you have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ. You have been. It's a done deal. And yet there are continuing things that we're about to see. 
salvation past, Christ our righteousness. Then we also see salvation present. This is Christ, our sanctification. That's another one of those big $10 Bible words, but it is a beautiful word because it says that God is transforming us into His holy image from one degree of glory to another. We talked about that last week, this idea that God is transforming us from the inside out. This is what sanctification means. To be sanctified is to be set apart to be made holy. Go to Romans chapter 6, flip over a page or two in your Bible there, and you'll find Romans chapter 6, which says in verse 20, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. There was no righteousness in you, but what, fr- what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, there's another one of those but now moments. But now... Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to what? To sanctification. And the end of sanctification is what? Eternal life. Eternal life. And then we know Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is what? It's death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so while the Bible can say without any hesitation, you have been saved through your faith in Christ, the Bible will also say in various places, like here in Romans chapter 6, you are being saved through your faith in Christ. It is a present reality that we are being transformed from glory to glory. We are being made holy like He is holy through the power of His Word and His Spirit at work in our lives. We are being transformed. We are being sanctified. This is the present reality of our salvation. Christ, our sanctification, but not just that. We're not finished yet. Salvation future is Christ our redemption. So in the wisdom of God, you have been saved. You are being saved. And then the Bible will often say as well, you will be saved. That's the picture in Romans chapter 8. Flip over a page or two more. You'll find Romans chapter 8, which says in verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know. We don't just think. We don't just hope. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. There's the now. Until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. I love that phrase. This is the description of our lives in the body until Christ takes us home to glory with Him. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. This is the definition of what it means to follow Christ in a broken world. Groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for what we are waiting for, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Understand, adoption in the first century meant something a little bit different than it means in our day. Adoption in the first century was inextricably tied to the inheritance. To adopt meant to deliver unto one who was not your kin by blood the inheritance all that you had would be given 
to them. This is kind of like what happened with Abraham in the Old Testament before he had kids. He said, but Eliezer, my servant, is going to end up being the one who receives the inheritance from me because I don't have any kids. Do you see it, church? The scriptures are saying here what we're waiting for is our adoption, which means our inheritance in Christ. And part of that inheritance is the redemption of everything, including our bodies. The whole creation will be redeemed. There will be a new heavens and a new earth, as scriptures say, but also even our bodies that are broken and ravaged by sin. And the older we get, the more it hurts to get up in the morning. All that's going to be removed, all the, all the death, all the crying, all the pain, all the mourning, all that will be renewed. All of it will be redeemed and redeemed based upon the price that Christ paid at the cross. Don't miss that. In order for there to be redemption, a price had to be paid. Redeem is a, is a technical term in the first century, which means the deliverance of a slave. Somebody paid a price so that a slave could be set free. And that's what the gospel is saying, that you were a slave to sin. And there was absolutely nothing that you could do about that. You were powerless in your sin. And you weren't wise enough to figure out how to save yourself. And you had no status to elevate you to anything in the sight of God. And he stooped down. And took on your weakness in the cross. He stooped down and took on your powerlessness in the cross. He stooped down and became of lowly status. There is no lower status that you can take. There is no lower that the Son of God could go than to go to the cross. And there he purchased the redemption of all things, including our bodies. And this is what we have to boast in, church. From this point forward, from 1 Corinthians 1, these verses forward, all the way through 2 Corinthians, there is this constant theme of boasting. You can search it for yourself. Go home, pull up Bible Gateway, and just look at the word boast. Search the word boast in First and Second Corinthians and begin to read and watch how that will begin to convict your heart as you recognize that there are only two realities of boasting from which you can choose. One avenue of boasting will lead you to eternal life through Christ. And the other will lead you to a devil's hell. The reality for every person in this room is this, and every person outside this room. You will either spend your boasting upon the glory of God and what He has done for you in the person of Christ, His perfect Son, or you will spend your boasting upon your own glory, upon your own wisdom, your own strength, your own status. You will boast in your own accomplishments or in his accomplishments. You will boast in your work or you will boast in his work. You will boast in your life or you will boast in his life. In Galatians 6, Paul says, So be, but far be it from me. 
Keep this far away from me that I would boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And so I ask you, where is your boasting? Is your boasting Christ crucified? Is your boasting in the fact that the one true and living God, perfect in his holiness, saw fit to come and rescue a wretched sinner like you and like me through the blood of his perfect son that was poured out on a criminal's cross? Is your boasting in the fact that he who knew no sin became sin for you so that you could become the righteousness of God in him? Is your boasting in the fact that he clothed you in his righteousness because you had no righteousness of your own? Is your boasting in the fact that he did everything necessary to rescue your sin-sick soul by his power and for his glory so that he could say in his final words, it is finished? Or is your boasting in what you could do to add to the work of God? Is your boasting in the fact that you were smart enough to get baptized or pray the prayer or walk the aisle or join the church? Or is your boasting in the fact that none of those things matter one iota in comparison with the cross of Christ? That all that you have is found in Him. That all that matters, that all that's going to last, that all that's not going to be burnt up by the fires of God's just judgment in the end. Everything that you have is, that's worth having is found in Christ. And so here's how I want to finish today. It's going to be a little different and maybe a little outside of our comfort zone, but I want to challenge us to some sanctified boasting this morning. See, see, here's, I think, what the tendency would be. As we begin to read uh, about boasting, especially in these letters to the Corinthians, who were one of some of the greatest boasters on the face uh, of the planet, and we're following in their footsteps in this culture, by the way. I think our tendency would be to say, well, let's just stay away from boasting altogether. Let's just stay away from it altogether. And yet if we do that, we are missing out on what the Apostle Paul has put before us here in Galatians 6.14 and over in 1 Corinthians 1 and all throughout 1 and 2 Corinthians. He's saying there is a boasting to do. There is a necessary boasting for the people of God. And it is boasting in Christ and Him crucified. It's boasting in our Savior who did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And this is a necessary boasting because if we keep silent, then the world goes on boasting its way all the way to hell and never hears from us the greatness of our God and the rescuing power of our Redeemer. And so I want to encourage this church this morning to do a little boasting. Here's how we're going to do it. First of all, we're going to sing something else the world looks at as foolishness. Say, what good is that? I'm going to sing a song about some dude who died on a cross 2,000 years ago. And in this particular song we're going to sing this morning, we're going to make the proclamation, all I have is Christ. 
And we live in a world that says that is utterly ridiculous. That says if all you have is Christ, you ain't got much. Now the gospel says you ain't much. Oh, that's bad grammar, but it's good gospel. You ain't much, but he is everything. And so you can sing all I have is Christ and follow it up with hallelujah. Praise be to God. Though I had no wisdom, though I had no strength, though I had no status, I have Christ, and that's all that matters. We're going to sing, and then we're going to participate in what I'm going to call just some sanctified boasting. Here's what I want you to be considering as we share this song together. How could you boast about your God today? Perhaps for some of you in this room, this very week there's been an answer to prayer that has given you reason for boasting in the Lord. Perhaps there's been a remedy to an ailment, a lost family member that's come to know Christ as Savior. It could be a number of things, but perhaps this week you have recognized that were it not for the power of God that has been put on display in your life through the answer to that prayer, you are without hope. You have reason for boasting. And I'm going to encourage you not to keep that to yourself. Perhaps for some of you this morning, perhaps through this message or just through the reading of God's word on your own, you have been reminded of who you were apart from Christ. You've been reminded of your wretchedness apart from him. And this morning, the joy of the Lord, which is your strength and your salvation, has risen up in your soul. And you say, I've got to boast a little bit about my God. I've got to boast a little bit about the fact that he rescued me from my wretchedness. And he took me not just out of the pit of my despair. He didn't just set me on level ground. No, the scriptures say we are seated with him in glory. That's worth boasting about. That in Christ now, we've not just been set free from sin, but we have been seated with Christ in glory. That's something for us to boast about, church. And I don't want to fill in the blanks any more than I already have, but I want to say this to us. If you are in Christ today, you have reason for boasting. So let's boast a little. After we sing this song together, we have plenty of time. We got done way early today. I know here's going to be the temptation. I can get on out of here and get on to lunch. If you belong to Jesus Christ this morning, you've got a reason for boasting, and I want to urge you to linger. I want you to urge you to get together with one or two or three other brothers and sisters in this room, and I want us to circle up and just boast about the glory of our God. I want us to boast about His greatness in our lives. I want us to boast about the fact that He is the only one who can answer our prayers and redeem our brokenness. He is, he is our hope and our salvation. He's worthy of our boasting. If you're caught up in the word boasting, let's just use the word praise. How's that? It's really all the same in light of who he is.